Our first reading is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. Jesus is presented in the temple. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms, praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is from the letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 1. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves though they are the owners of all the property. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us. While we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Amen. One of the books that I've been given for Christmas is a collection of photographs of Edinburgh, together with a commentary. It's a book put together by Alexander McCall Smith. Some of you will know him as a novelist, but he, he has lived for many years in Edinburgh, put together this wonderful 
collection of old photographs with uh, description and discussion about it. And as you can imagine, I'm just loving it. I'm spending a long time looking through the pictures for places where I grew up and uh, places that I remember and places I still visit when I go to see the family. But one of the comments on a photo of a building that I know well, or thought I knew well, really caught my attention. It is necessary to look up to see the best of many of the buildings in Edinburgh. It's written of the National Library, <clears throat> and it's about a series of statues that I've never seen. And they're there on the front, but they're very high up, and they're set slightly back, they're inset into the walls, and clearly, I've just never caught sight of them. And it's often struck me that the best advice that could be given to a tourist or anybody wanting to get to know a city or a town is look up. There's often so much to see high up above on the buildings that we don't otherwise notice because we're paying attention to what's immediately around us or indeed to what is below our feet given the unevenness of so many of the pavements. But looking up opens up all sorts of new things to see and it's one of the things that people did when they came to the temple in Jerusalem, and they were encouraged to. The building was designed to inspire and to overawe. Josephus, who was a historian who lived, uh, wrote about the temple in, in AD 70, uh, following the revolt, but he'd seen it, he'd visited it, he'd worshiped in it. He described it this way, viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes overlaid all round with stout plates of gold. The first rays of the, the sun reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they had looked straight at the sun. To strangers as they approached, it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. Nobody approaching the temple, nobody coming into the city would need to be urged to look up to see this marvel. It dominated and it presided over the city powerfully. And so it should. This was the dwelling place of God, the location in which God had promised, at least it was the rebuilding of the location in which God had promised to be present and to dwell among the people. That was the promise made and honored when the temple was built, and so it should be visible and powerful and unavoidable. And it was here at the right time that Mary and Joseph brought the infant to do what was required by custom and tradition. All children, in particular firstborn sons, were brought to the temple. And as always, the tradition that's presented is not easily understood because it was written for those who understood it in the writing of the gospel. But there's a statement in Exodus 13 that every firstborn male shall be holy to the Lord and it relates to the Exodus story when the firstborn of the Egyptians were killed to force Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And so the houses of the Israelites were marked with the blood of the lamb so that they would be passed over and their children not harmed. And so the institution of the Passover, which celebrates that liberation, the firstborn of all humans and animals to be consecrated to God. And this is then continued and becomes part of the temple worship. By the time the story of Jesus is being told, there is clearly a, first, a custom of bringing firstborn sons to the temple and making a sacrifice as part of the dedication. And it's all of a piece of recognizing the presence of God amongst the people 
and committing life into God's hands and coming to the temple, bringing the offering, taking part in the life of the community. Look up, and there it is, the wondrous temple, the possibility of response and dedication, overwhelming everything. And this kind of service, this bringing of an infant into worship is, is great. We have our own form of dedication, and it's wonderful. We get to celebrate, to give thanks for, to pray for, not just firstborn children, but all the children connected with our congregation. And it's, it's one of the delights of ministry. We get to welcome the children, to give thanks for them, get to introduce them to the congregation. I get to wander around the congregation carrying babies and what's not to like. And we're grateful for those amongst us who fulfill the promises that we make at that kind of service, that there will always be a welcome for children here. And we'll do our best to teach them to know and to love God and to know that they are known and loved by God. And so every week, people prepare material and activities. And as has happened today, when there are children present, they go out and they look after them and they care for them and they play with them and they teach them and they talk with them. And it's fantastic. And it's at the beginning of the year, it's a good time to acknowledge the folk who do that and say thank you to them. But there weren't any Sunday club teachers in the temple there were those who were ready to welcome Mary and Joseph and to provide them with the necessary offerings for the sacrifice and to initiate the child into the community of the people of God. All the family had to do was turn up and it would happen. People would sell them the doves or the pigeons that they needed. The priest would make the offering. The prayers were provided. It was all there. They would find what they needed. And it is a very effective social religion. It's a powerful overarching story that makes sense of the world and helps them, helps them fit into it. There in the temple, it all came together for them. There was a visible representation of the transcendent, the all-powerful, that held things in being. There was a ritual and a practice that shaped how to respond, not just there, but in the rest of life. There were people available to teach and to interpret, to help them to get it right, to ensure that they were kept safe, in approaching and dealing with this mighty power that is God. Something similar going on in the section of Paul's letter just before the part that we've read, but he'd been discussing the law and its role in God's plan for saving people in the world. He's spoken of the law as a gift, the plan of God to help people understand just how holy and how transcendent God is and how to relate well and safely to God. And then in the passage that we heard, Paul speaks of the need for those who are minors, who are not yet fully responsible, to be cared for and protected. And then he speaks of the dangers that these systems can pose. Even the best of them, like the law, can end up enslaving and making those within them no better than infants and keeping them powerless. And I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. There are systems Systems in our own experience that are like the law, that are like the temple. Systems in our own experience that do much the same. Systems into which we dedicate and introduce our children necessarily so that they can function. Any community, any society has to have ways of organizing and dealing with big forces and complex relationships. They're necessary systems, but they can and they do end up oppressing and disempowering and damaging those who must live within their structures. A series of, of uh, uh, deeply rooted and inescapable systems seem to be around us. One of them, for example, 
we might name as patriarchal hierarchy. A series of assumptions and cultural practices and expectations and power structures that organize a community of people into ranks and divisions and orders with privilege and exclusion as distinguishing features. And it's usually not exclusively, but usually ordered around gender. And it is there from the very beginning of our lives. Around the world, it restricts the possibilities for women to be educated, to have money, to be a, have a political voice, to thrive in their own right, not be defined by the relationship to father or brother or husband or son, and which has received the sacrifice of lives, lives taken in honor killings, in domestic violence, in child marriage, and not only in societies that are not ours. In our supposedly more equal society, some of you will have been aware of the Me Too campaign, in, which was largely on social media, but which made um, other forms of media as well, which those who had suffered sexual assault and harassment went public, some of us for the first time, and made it clear that this form of power play and domination is still incredibly present and effective as a way of controlling relationships. And I know it's not only women that suffer from this kind of violence, but it has its roots in the assumption that one gender has rights that another does not, simply by virtue of being that gender. And it can work both ways, but the figures and the experience weight it towards the power of men. And indeed, patriarchy is not just men uh, oppressing women, it's the power of the fathers. It's also a hierarchy of age and uh, wealth and um, education and a whole structure that controls how the world works. And being socialized into it starts early. There's a colored coding of clothes. There's toys and other goods designed for boys and girls. If you've been buying presents for children this Christmas, that struggle to not get something that's already branded as belonging to one gender or the other. And the furore that can erupt, in fact, has erupted this week when someone chooses to be outside the prescribed norms. And yes, it's changing today, and no, it's not gone. And it still dominates and it still overwhelms. And there may be for some people a benefit. Paul argues that the law is not intrinsically evil, but it harms and it distorts in people's experience. And we need a way of organizing living together. But when it harms and distorts, we have a fallen or a demonic system at work. Similarly, we need to have an economic system. But what we experience is an apparently faceless and inhuman system of market forces to which all other intentions are subject, which cannot be ignored or overturned. The finance world has its temples of imposing buildings, not the banks, they're more like the synagogues where ordinary people can come and go, but the offices, the edifices that dominate and into which only those and such as those can go, can enter. There are rituals, there are practices, there are ways in which we are taught to manage money and power we do not have because the market forces are bigger than we are. And the rituals become more and more esoteric and difficult to master as we get further involved, and so there are teachers, advisors, experts who can interpret this, who have the role of managing these forces on behalf of the rest of us, rather like the priests managing the power of the holy. And the patterns of domination and expert management are there in religion too. We can encounter it in local congregations. This is the way we do it the kind of people or theology or worship that is proper here. And this may be offered and sustained by the ministers of a congregation or by others who are gatekeepers to the roles, to the money, to the resources, to being accepted. 
We can encounter it in denominations. Our own dispute with our immediate London family over our marriage practices signals this. The possibility of living with diversity is resisted. Power is brought to bear to bring people into line. We also encounter it in the attitude of a largely secular dominated society towards religion of any sort. Don't get me wrong, I'm a good Baptist. I don't want a religiously dominated community. I certainly don't want an established church, but it leaves a challenge. All of us who identify as people of faith, whatever faith group we belong to, encounter a system within society that tries to make us belong to the secular world on its terms. There are practices and rituals of belonging that show up when we try to affirm religious values that put us at odds with the assumptions of our society. Our oddities are pointed out, our identity is challenged. There are experts who manage how society should be by interpreting it for us and telling us, for example, that religion is on the wane or it should be private or it needs to be in line with certain other assumptions about values and so on. Our temples and our sacrifices and our priests may be other than those met by Mary and Joseph when they took the infant for that ritual of purification and dedication. But we still have them. And they're just as pervasive and just as life-shaping as the story that Luke is telling here. We do not need to look up to see them. They are around us and within us and beside us and they shape our lives. And Luke is telling a story of the law the system being fulfilled of Mary and Joseph living within it. And it's the story that Paul echoes when he speaks of Jesus being born under the law in order to reach those who were under the law. The world is ordered through systems. It has to be. We need to find ways of living together. And Jesus is born into that. Well, that is how we all live. But the danger, as Paul highlights it, is that we divinize the systems. We give them power to structure our world and then to define reality and then we trust them to save us. And that's to go too far. The law was given to help people know God and live together. But it became that which was idolized and was trusted to be the whole truth and the only way to be saved and to be included and be in touch with the divine. It was in danger of being given the place due to God alone. And it wasn't a one-off mistake. We do it with all the systems of power and organization. They become the ways to save us from chaos and violence and destruction. They take the place of God for us. But Simeon and Anna, in their different ways, noticed something else going on. They saw what others didn't. Others saw the glory of the temple and the wonder of its majesty and dignity. Some saw the reverence of the worship or the demands of the sacrifice or the holiness of the liturgy, the authority and the power of the priests. Still others saw that without the law and without the system that defined the world and ordered their relationship to the divine and the power, there would be chaos. Anna and Simeon saw an infant and noticed the presence of God. They noticed that the system was not divine and couldn't save them. They noticed that there was a presence and a promise of God in quite another place, coming to them in quite another way. In the place and in the face of the whole presentation and insistence and assumption of who God is and how God comes, they noticed something else. They saw the infant, as Luke tells us, because God showed them, guided by the Spirit. They saw this new, this wonderful, this unexpected and complex presence of God. 
And it is complex. It's not straightforward. It's not sentimental. Simeon has words of glory, yes. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord prepared in the presence of all the people. And Anna speaks of the child who has come for the redemption of Jerusalem. But Simeon also speaks of the child as being for the falling and rising of many, a sign that will be opposed, a sword that will pierce Mary's soul. Anna speaks of those who are seeking the redemption of Jerusalem, but what is she talking about? And who is she talking to? It's never straightforward when we claim to see the presence of God in Jesus. Not when Jesus was an infant, nor as the ministry progresses, nor in the cross, nor even in the resurrection. Simeon saw, sees something, Anna sees something, but so many others present did not. They were looking for something else. They saw something else, as Paul puts it. Anna and Simeon were free from the law, from the rituals and the practice and the dominating systems, and so they were able to, see, to say, Abba, Father, and know the redeeming presence of God. Not seen where it was expected, but seen in the vulnerable, ordinary, unexpected infant. And in the presence of the systems that we are in and part of, how do we see in a child, unrecognized by most, and vulnerable to all, how do we see the presence of God? How do we even see the presence of the child? Guided by the Spirit, Simeon saw the child. Anna never left the temple but worshipped and fasted and prayed. These two were not unpracticed in ways of noticing God's presence. They were not untrained in discovering God in unexpected places. They had spent time and energy and effort seeking God, and it turned out that God found them. And that's why worshipping together and listening to one another matters. Not because it makes us feel good, and not because we like the hymns, Saving Your Presence, and not because we enjoy the organ, though we are delighted when someone comes to play it. Not even because the sermons make our minds work or the prayers move us. It's because it trains us. It gives us the skill and the practice in noticing where God is and what God is doing. It cracks open our assumptions that we know who God is and how God is acting. And it challenges our presumptions about where we will find God and how God will find us. And if it doesn't, then whatever else we're doing, we're not worshipping. We might be learning facts, we might be appreciating music, we might be enjoying the singing, and all of those are great. But worship will be opening us up in the presence of God in new ways and sensitizing us to discover God in places we didn't expect and in people we never thought of. I love the fact that so much is done in and through this congregation that we feed people and we give people beds and we find the necessities of life and we offer hospitality on all sorts of levels. I love the way in which we get involved, truly get our hands dirty and bear the scars of it in our political campaigning for people whose voice might otherwise not easily be heard, in our own city through London citizens, around the world with our commitment to Palestine, with the peace process in Nigeria and so on. And I am absolutely committed to that. And in doing all of that, we are doing what people of goodwill can and do do in all sorts of ways. And that's great because it means we link up with our allies and we add our voice to ongoing activity. And we can find allies and partners and have them join in with us. But what, if anything, do we do that others don't? 
And what we do is we tell the stories of Jesus and we worship. And those are the practices that make us who we are, that train us, that open us, that turn us around in that old term, that convert us and enable us to see where God is and what God is doing, just as Simeon and Anna did. In places that aren't obvious, that aren't assumed, that are not in line with the dominant systems of our society and that are world changing. So here's the typical preacher's plea as we enter a new year. I invite you, actually more than that, I challenge you to take worship and prayer seriously. Not in order to escape from the world and not to pass over all responsibility for changing things and living the kingdom into being to some supernatural force that we will control through our words and our piety, but so that we can see God in places we might not expect and see what that means and see what God is doing and how we might join in. There's an old definition of prayer as being not to do with changing God's mind, but changing the one who prays. And here's how we're changed. We're enabled to see things differently, to see where God is, to see what God is doing, despite the controlling systems, the law and custom that our context will tell us. Through worship, we bring our attention to different structures as we tell the stories of Jesus and so the account of how God is at work in the world. Not in power and might, not through economics or patriarchal domination, but lovingly, vulnerably, unexpectedly, amongst the weak and the poor and the defenseless. And in prayer, we align ourselves with this kingdom. We give ourselves to it. We trust its coming amongst us. In worship and prayer, as we explore and discover and commit and trust, we will be changed. And it won't be like the New Year's resolutions. It's not some kind of moral self-improvement scheme. And it won't be making us more powerful as if it was some kind of keep fit regime to improve our muscle tone, not even to free us from our besetting sin. And it won't be like a weight loss program that will make us slim and fit and better looking as we get rid of all that holds us back. It will be that we have our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our imaginations opened to notice where God is present and what God's doing in those tiny moments. The gurgle of a child. Or those gentle little touches of the infant's hand. Or that distracting event when the baby who wants to be fed howls and lets everybody know and disrupts what we're trying to do. Those moments and events which are outside the systems and the assumptions and will change the way we see the world. And then we can join in, in whole new ways. And one last thing, when Simeon and Anna saw it, they spoke of it. Not the theory, not the implications, not something far distant and historic or even heroic. They spoke of their experience and their faith and their hope and their God. Can we? Dare we? Will you please join me in prayer? Eternal God of each present moment, we come before you at the turning of another year with diverse emotions and tentative hope. The past and the future meet in this day 
and lay themselves before us for prayerful pondering. As we look back over the last year, we see in our lives and in the lives of those we love that most human combination of joy and sorrow, love and loss, laughter and tears. And so we hold before you now those whom you bring to our minds. Loved ones we have lost and loved ones we have discovered. Friends who have suffered and friends who have rejoiced. Those who have borne burdens and those who have found release. And we trust that you have been present in all these, our varied experiences of life drawing all things together in your great love. As we look to the coming year, we offer you our hopes and our dreams, our resolution and our resolve. And yet we recognize that despite our best efforts, we will not be the people that you've called us to be. But we hold to the hope that by your grace we will be the people you have created us to be. And so we pray for the uncertainty of tomorrow, and we trust that you will be present with us, whatever the future may hold, as you draw all things together in your great love. But most of all, we turn our prayers to the needs of this day, because yesterday is gone and cannot be changed, and tomorrow will bring enough worries of its own. So we pray for the world to which you have come in Christ Jesus, bringing forgiveness where there is guilt, and new life where there is suffering and death. We commit to your loving care all those who face tomorrow with no hope because their situation today is hopeless. And we think particularly of refugees, asylum seekers, and all people displaced by war or climate change. Renew in us a concern for the weak and the vulnerable and give us courage to speak up for the voiceless to speak out against violence in all its forms, and to speak of the necessity to care for all creation. We pray for those who have the authority to effect change on a global scale, for politicians and business leaders, for the rich and the powerful, the articulate and the influential. May they be given the gift of empathy and the courage to use their power for the good of the many and not just the few. Renew in us a passion for change and an unwillingness to acquiesce. Give us the courage to take action against powers that coerce and control. And may we learn to be wise in the ways we speak and act as we seek to play our part in the coming of your kingdom of love, 
justice and peace. And so we pray for our church, for your gathered people in this place. We thank you for one another in all our glorious diversity, and we recommit ourselves to each other as sisters and brothers in Christ. We pray for those who have come through the doors of this building over the last year, from actors and celebrities to the homeless and the vulnerable. We pray for all those who have joined us in worship, visitors from around the globe bringing greetings from your worldwide family. We pray for those who have left our fellowship and for those who have joined it. May we know today who we are created to be and may we learn what it is to be true to the calling you have placed on us. Help us to love each other, to welcome new people with kindness, to serve one another with grace, and to forgive one another with sincerity. May our church over the coming year be a place of safety for those who are vulnerable and a place of challenge for those who are comfortable. May we be a community of inclusion for those who are excluded and a community of defiance for those who would exclude. May we be humble in the face of our own failings, but bold in the face of those who fail others. May we be your people, in this place at this time, created by you and called to live lives of courageous love. All this we pray through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.